Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of How to Live the Podcast, where we have real, meaningful, and fun conversations with people who inspire us, and sometimes just with each other. We are your hosts, Jess and Steph Dadon. Really hope you guys are staying safe and well over this period. We'd love to hear how you're doing. Let's chat a bit about how we're doing. Uh, I've been up and down, to be honest with you. I go through waves of like panic and anxiety. Like I feel like we all do a little bit, but not reading the news and taking time for myself is definitely what's helping me the most. Yeah, I agree. I'm just trying to like focus on myself because when I start thinking too big, I think that's when I get overwhelmed. Like when I think about what other people are doing and like the numbers and the world and whatever. But if I'm just like, I'm doing the best that I can, I'm staying at home as much as I can. I'm doing all the good things. That's as much as we can do right now. Totally. We can't control what other people are doing. And I think the other thing that's really helping is being able to help other people. And it's been actually pretty cool to see how the world is uniting over this and coming together, even if it's just people sharing funny things to make people laugh on Instagram. Oh my God. The content coming out of Instagram right now is hilarious and amazing. I find it so uplifting. And it's also really cool to see people with skills sharing stuff for free to keep people entertained and sane, like cooking tutorials, Mm. yoga classes, meditation, stuff like that. Yeah, totally. And then also on a bigger scale, seeing LVMH in Europe that they've transferred their beauty factories to now be producing hand sanitizer. And then people like Christian Siriano in the US are using their factories to make hospital gowns and masks. I just feel like it's a really cool time that people are really coming together and being there for each other. And people are referencing like the last time this happened, it was World War II, but it's like World War II was not a good time. Whereas this is all of us against the virus. Yeah, I know. It's like this really funny thing where like in the past, there would have been a lot of anger and violence around something like this. And I guess there is anger, but because it's towards a virus and not towards a person or a country, it actually feels like it's uniting people I don't want to use the word in a positive way but definitely in a more positive way Mm, and hopefully in a way that's going to be long lasting and my favorite meme which I shared with you this morning on our little morning routine that we're doing on Instagram live every day is that somebody shared this meme kind of feeling like the earth just sent us all to our rooms to think about what we've done yeah I freaking love that it could not be better like she's just got our back you know we thought we had to worry about her but she's like no 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 I got this guys chill out stay home totally I'm gonna like rebirth over here so I guess it's really about us all being able to stop and think how we can contribute to the community what special skills or qualities that we have that we can offer people. And for us, we really feel like that's bringing positivity, inspiration and motivation even more than we usually do because I think we could all really use it at this time. And so let's get into today's episode because it's exactly that. So today we have an incredible episode in store for you guys with the founder of The Design Files, Lucy Fagans. And The Design Files is, of course, Australia's most popular design blog or the world's most popular design blog as we have rebranded it in this episode. Lucy is just the most delightful person. Like she's one of those people that's really fun to be around. I'm sure you'll notice in the episode, you'll just catch yourself smiling for absolutely no reason. It's not us. It's Lucy. She's just so genuine and incredible and it totally translates through this podcast. But I think something really funny is we sat down and we recorded this episode with Lucy a few weeks ago now before we all knew the gravity of the situation we're facing. And somehow a lot of the advice that she's given in it is really relevant to today. Yes, totally. Like she talks about the internet being a weird place. She talks about the importance of having a lean and nimble business to stay afloat in times of uncertainty. Hello, right now. I know. It is just so freaking relevant. It can't be a coincidence because there are no coincidences. And Lucy even shares some styling advice of how you can spruce up your home. Which is so relevant to right now. I mean, we're all spending so much time in our homes 
It's pretty crazy, you guys. And we really think you are just going to get so much out of this episode. If you need something uplifting, it's uplifting. If you need a little bit of business advice, it's got that too. It's got a bit of everything for everyone, really. Mm, It really does. So stick around to the end of the episode to hear who is going to be on this podcast next week. And of course, make sure you join our Facebook group, How to Live the Podcast, where we are staying in touch with you guys. We're sharing what's been helping us in these times. And of course, we will be posting some bonus content from today. Spoiler alert, I'm actually going to be taking the Facebook group through my house to give you a behind the scenes view on where I live. It's really pretty. I'm pink. Enjoy Lucy. Well, glad we're finally getting to catch up. I know. I've been plotting this one for a while now. I am so excited to be here. I'm very, I'm a bit nervous. Oh, don't worry. We get nervous before our interviews as well. We were kind of having a laugh together when we were reading about your background because we started our blog, How to Live, in 2012. And people love to say to us, you guys were visionaries. How did you know that, you know, you needed to start a blog and all of this stuff? And then you actually launched yours in 2008. I know. Four whole years before we did. So, so if we're visionaries, you're like an oracle. I feel like an old lady of the internet. I always <laughs> say that. I'm just like, 2008 was a very long time ago in internet years. What prompted you to start a blog at that point? I was really passionate about design and interiors. I like an early blog days to like early Instagram days, you know, when it was just really exciting and a really supportive community and quite small community compared to what it is now. And I was reading a lot of blogs, but they were all international. There was really nothing like it in Australia. So I was just like, oh, I'll just try and be the Australian version of a design blog. What were you doing at that point with your life? I was working in the film industry. So I was a set dresser. So not a design. I didn't study design, but these days you think of it more as styling, like sourcing furnishings and props and objects for photo shoots and film shoots. And that type of work was fun, but it was very up and down. Sometimes I was crazy busy and then I have times of not being busy. So I sort of feel like often people in those sort of jobs have a side project. You know, it just keeps you mentally sort of happy as much as anything else. So for me, it was just a side project because my work was sort of up and down. I feel like in 2020, everybody has a side hustle, right? Yeah, it was unusual at the time, I guess. But in the film industry in particular, like everyone has, yeah, side projects and different things going on because the work's so random. And, you know, I've never had a real nine to five job. In fact, the job I have now is the most stable and nine to five ever. You know, I've never worked in a big organization. I've never had a sort of boss in the conventional sense. Neither have we in a lot of ways. And then isn't it weird when you end up having to learn how to be a boss and manage a nine to five when you've never even had one? It's so strange. You just honestly feel like that imposter syndrome all the time. Like I feel that often. Like I have to, at the moment I'm hiring for a new role and I was writing the job description last night and I was like, I just feel like I'm making this up. Like, oh, yeah. You know, but I think that's the secret to life. I think everyone is actually just making it up. Absolutely. We're all just like out here faking it. Yesterday, um, someone in our team was, I don't know how to do this because I've never done this before. And we all looked at each other and kind of laughed because we were like, none of us know how to do anything until we have to do it. Like, you know, we're all just learning as we go. Yeah, totally. like Googling, how do you write a job description? Totally. But I figure, I don't know, I've been doing this for 12 years now, so... Even though I don't know what I'm doing, I still feel like no one knows how to do it better than I do. (laughs) Yes, true. Absolutely. So in those early days, like what did your blog post actually look like? Because when we started, ours was a daily diary between the two of us. Yeah. It was so basic. Now it would not fly, but it was just... Hey, Steph, today I'm doing this. Here's an outfit shot. And it was taken on a really, really bad iPhone. It actually still exists at howtolive.blogspot.com. I've pulled it up here now. Oh, and you I can did not see know these this. like old photos of us. And we of used to like being absolute babies. Post like what we were wearing. And like we've got these crazy like fluoro glasses on and big platforms. And this was our original blog. But you know what's so interesting about that? I feel like now in a way, we're almost going back to that more lo-fi thing because everything's so polished and styled and sort of brand associated and stuff now that I think there's actually a bit of a, I don't know, there's a move back to this more sort of authentic. Yeah. And slightly less perfect photography. Like a man repel is a lot like that to me, you know, it's very professional and whatever, and it's amazing. And the writing's incredible, but I often find that the photos are like not 
as polished as I would expect for mm. a blog of that size. Yeah, know? and you're right though. Like I find myself responding better to that because it just feels ever so slightly attainable, I guess. It's not total escapism because I could imagine myself in the scenario. Yeah, it's not as aspirational. It's more accessible or something. So it was, I think, the interiors version of that. So I was never as brave as you guys in terms of being in front of the camera. Like it was never about me. So my face wasn't exactly on there, but it was crappy photos. It was some photos scoured from the internet and then also me taking really crappy photos myself. And in fact, the very early years of the blog are actually not even archived anymore on our site because it looks really bad. And also we've had so many site redesigns since then that the photos just don't work in our current format. So, you know, it was just me falling in love with some product like, oh my God, guys, I just found this new designer. Look at this beautiful lamp they designed for this collaboration. And, you know, just like me, the writing as well is way more excitable. I guess I was younger and it was all very new. And over time, our whole website has become so much more polished. Like the writing's better. We copy edit. We have a team. We have writers. We have photographers. We do everything so much better. But there is some magic that is a little bit lost, I think, because with those layers of professionalism, you do lose a bit of that excitement at the same time. And it's not me. And I used to write a lot in caps and heaps of exclamation marks and OMG sort of. And it's not like that anymore. I didn't really plan for it to change. It's just that over time, you do professionalise what you do as you grow. And it's different now, you know, it's, it had a spark back then. And now we do heaps of other great stuff that I'm really proud of, but it definitely has a different personality now. But I think it's funny as well, because so often we end up producing something for ourselves. So 12 years ago, you might have been this like very excitable person who was all about OMGs and exclamation marks. That was who was coming to you. But then over time, as you grow, your audience grows with you. That's definitely what's happened in our experience. Like when we first release the shoes they were a lot more like colorful and bright and crazy and young and then as our own style has evolved inevitably the brand has too totally and I mean you know I've been doing this for 12 years now I started when I was 27 or something now I'm 39 so I'm like as you said I'm different and my audience is different and yeah that's that's cool I'm cool with that so what point when you were posting those excitable posts with all these exclamation marks how did it go from just being this side project for you to turning into a business I never really intended for it to be a business. When I started it, it really was a side project that really had no commercial plans. But it was at the start of this wave, I got in at the right time. So within the first year, I was getting requests from brands that wanted to be on the site, that wanted to advertise. I didn't know what to do again, just making it up as I go along, sort of figuring out how to get some ads on the site and in a very basic way, charging brands to have a small ad on the side of my website for like one month at a time. Very, very basic. And I sort of just fudged it. And so about a year in, I started sort of accepting advertising, but it was really dribs and drabs. It wasn't enough for me to quit a job or anything like that. But then by about two years in, it was enough that I could quit my job. So that's what I did. I worked on a big film and saved like three months of living expenses. And I must admit, I was living with my mum, so it wasn't that difficult. <laughs> Thanks, mum. <laughs> and so, yeah, I just sort of tested it. I'm, I'm a pretty cautious person. I'm pretty risk averse. I wasn't going to leave a whole job just to do this crazy project, but I sort of backed myself for three months to see if I could make it work. And I never really went back to film after that. And did people think you were like totally crazy at the time? Because it was so unheard of. You know, now we're all about the Instagram turning into a profession that's like every second person. But then it would have been weird. It really was. So firstly, even the word blog in 2008 was a word that a lot of people didn't know. Like I would say I have a blog and people would be like, oh, I've heard of that, but what is that again? Like, it's just crazy to me that that wasn't a common thing. Like now every brand has a blog, you know, it's even actually old fashioned to have a blog yeah, now. Totally. <laughs> and also I was a bit embarrassed because I was working in film. Some of the girls in the office that I was working in would be like, oh, did you know Lucy has a blog? And I'd be like, shut up. You know, <laughs> the beauty actually at that time was you could do it at a time when there was no Instagram and no one was actually really watching. At least for six months, I could do it. And there was very little readership in those early months. And it didn't matter. And I could make mistakes. And I was not everything was being broadcast to everyone. So there's a real freedom that comes with that. So it definitely it was a novelty, I think. Yeah, I feel like there's always this magic in the beginning of something like when something's just a passion project. I feel that way a little bit about our podcast at the moment is that we can do whatever we want with it. And you know, people like, you should be bringing on sponsors or have you thought about commercializing it? And we're like, oh, the idea of someone telling us what to do or having to 
think too hard about not stepping on anyone's toes with it, then it becomes a whole different ballgame. But when you can really just be creative with it and do whatever you want to do, there's a real magic in that. Totally. I think that's true of so many things. That's when the creator's vision is really at its best, you know, because everything slowly becomes a series of negotiations and compromises and yeah with commercial sort of input there's always going to be a bit of a diluting of the initial sort of vision. When you see like an emerging designers piece like that's always our favorite to go to like student designer showcases. Before they've had the creativity beat out of them. Yeah exactly and before they have to think about oh actually selling something to a customer. Oh no people only buy black shoes. Sorry girls. Yeah I know it's so true though I do think yeah there's a freedom of expression that comes with just doing it without those constraints. We talked before a little bit about being a boss and how weird that experience is. I mean, we find it super bizarre when people are kind of like looking to us to lead them and we're like, oh, okay. So (laughs) how did you figure out how to manage people and become this boss lady? That has been one of the harder things, to be honest, because, you know, when you set up a business or a project like this, you're not thinking about that side of it. You're thinking about the output. You're thinking about if you're a creative person like we are, I think you're thinking about what you're putting into the world from a creative point of view. You're not really thinking about the behind the scenes systems that are going to be required to grow it and maintain it. So I've actually enjoyed in recent years that challenge of switching my focus and going, okay, well, not that the blog doesn't require my constant input, which it does, but I feel confident in it now. I know what the what our content is. I know what our tone is. I know what it needs to be. And it's a constant, relentless job to create content, but it, I'm not worried about it because I know what the requirements are of the content stream. But managing people has been something I've had to learn and there really isn't a lot of ways to learn it. Even in business school, not that I've been, you're not really taught how to inspire a team, keep a team motivated, HR, all that stuff. It's a bit alien. You you learn it on the job. But I have actually enjoyed flexing my brain in that new direction, to be honest, because I've been doing this for a long time and I can write a great story about a home or a designer or an architecture practice. But I need to be challenged too. And it's actually been good to develop my business sense. So we had this experience with how to live where it took off really quickly and then we were flying high for a little while and making some money, which was great. And then we kind of had this experience where the landscape started to change and everything kind of started to change. And we had this long, scary, terrifying period of lull where we were like, we don't know what we're doing, who's reading it, what are we putting out there? It was all very confusing. And we feel like other people have experienced that. But what we find really interesting when we look at the design files, because we have followed you for many, many years, is that we don't feel like the design files ever really had that. Oh my God, you're so kind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so we kind of just wanted to ask you about that. Like, have you experienced that sort of thing? Or if you haven't, what do you attribute that to? So such a good question. You know, the internet never stays still. And I think there's been key things in just the media landscape and the internet that have changed over the course of the last decade or so that have impacted our business. And one of them is Instagram and social media and that has been an immense opportunity but it's also been a massive challenge for publishers like me that want people to come to our website and make the majority of our income by what is on our website and it's not really possible for us to just put our whole website on Instagram. (laughs) So Instagram was a bit of a shift for us to have to respond to that. And it was almost like taking away from what you were doing on the blog. Like I feel like Instagram coming up was a turning point for a lot of people. And for us, we really started to put a lot of our energy into Instagram instead of our blog. And that's for us when our blog fell off because Instagram was taking it, but it was hard to monetize it. Yeah. The thing is, obviously, you don't really own the channel on Instagram and you're building an audience there, but you really have to be prioritizing the channels you own, which are obviously your website, your database, because that's your investment in the longevity of your business. But in relation to the question of a lull, I do feel that we have had lulls, maybe not big visible ones, but I think any business goes through sort of peaks and troughs. When I was pregnant with my daughter, so she's now four, I do feel like I had to sort of recalibrate for around a year, even though I did work through that time, I couldn't just be pushing, pushing forward and pushing for growth in the way that I had done previously. 
we have had not so much a lull, but we've had stagnant sort of years where we haven't really grown readership. But I think I've come to realize that that's actually just part of having a business that lives on the internet is that it's sort of not actually just endless growth in one direction. It's sort of a volatile, really. The internet's a weird place. It is a strange thing to have a business that so much of it lives online. I would say as well that it's about that consistency. Like you guys have this superpower in that you have each other because it can be really hard just to be motivated if you're a sole business owner like me to just be consistent. Like from day one with Design Files, I always committed. I don't even know why, because I was so young and didn't really know what I was doing, but I committed to posting a new piece of content every day, every weekday, Monday to Friday from day one. And just that consistency of having so much content under my belt and having that, just that ritual of doing it has been a real game changer because no matter what money's coming in, no matter what client has let me down, I just have this focus of like, okay, well, that didn't go well, but I've got a story to post tomorrow and I've got a story to post the next day. And there's that discipline that I think is really important as well. That's so funny because when we started our blog, we were like one post every day, Monday to Friday. It has to be that way. 10 a.m. People were like, you're crazy. Why do it every day? Do it once a week, do it every second day. And we were just, no, we just feel like people want content. It has to be every day. Yeah. And that was also something that definitely built up our readership in the beginning because people were coming to us for something fresh and something new. And it was before people had content strategies. You know, we didn't know what that was. We didn't have Instagram posting. Now it's like five times a day for some brands. People were so content hungry then as well, but there wasn't kind of a platform where you could endlessly consume like there are so many now. Exactly. But you mentioned that you're a solopreneur. Oh, yeah. You're on your own. Yeah. How does that go? Like my boyfriend, he has partners in his business, but he doesn't have a co-founder. Yeah. And on the weekends, we'll sit down for brunch and it'll be like this really nice brunch. We'll be sitting in the sun and he'll be like, oh, let me offload on what happened this week. And I'm like, really? Do we have to do this right now? Like I'm chilling. And he's always like hearing me on the phone to Jess and he's like, I'm so jealous because he'll just hear us being like, oh, how annoying was that thing today? You know, like we're constantly offloading to each other and we don't have to burden anyone else with it. How does that kind of go for you? Well, for one thing, I will say I really enjoy being the sole decision driver in my business. For me, it works really well. I mean, I have partnered with people on one-off projects and collaborations and not that anything's ever gone badly, but I just really value just having the final say, which is not to say I don't value great advice and great collaborators, but obviously I have a team. I couldn't do what I do without my team, but I I actually think it's about efficiency for me. I'm like, I don't want to have four meetings about this. I don't want to put forward my suggestions. If I feel intuitively that something needs to happen, I like being able to be efficient and just get things done and be quite quick with decision-making. So I, for me, it works, but a lot of people I know do say, how do you do it without sharing the load? And it is hard with having a kid and it is hard with holidays. Like I don't ever, ever go offline. Every day that I'm on holiday, I check email. I can't not because I don't have someone that I share that load with, but I don't know. It works for me. Yeah. In that way that we can share the load, it is really good. Last year I went to Bali for three weeks and Stephanie just like fully took over and then Steph went away to a retreat in June and I fully took over and that's really nice. It's amazing. I do really think it's your superpower, but I would say as well with your boyfriend, think about who you choose as your business partner. Like you guys are so lucky you've got each other. You know each other so well. You've grown up under one roof. If you didn't have yeah, the a decision sister, is the same. who would you go into business with? We met two women yesterday who went into business after meeting in business school. And I also thought, holy shit, how could you trust someone that, you know, because I trust my sister wholeheartedly or like a friend that I've known for a very long time. But yeah, there's a lot of trust. Trust and just you have to share the same work ethic. You'll be in different places at different times. Like one of you will want to have a family maybe a bit before the other one. And, you, you know, there's just so much that life throws at you and you need to really have someone that you can travel on that path with together. And I just feel like maybe if I'd found that person, or if I had a sibling like you guys that I wanted to be in business with, that would work for me. But I just feel like partnerships can cause problems as well. And I just yeah. rather be the master of my own, you know, Yeah. Destiny. I guess it's like, what problems do you want to pick? Yeah. yeah. There are pros and cons yeah, exactly. as with everything. Yeah. So now that the design files is this massive, I think you call it Australia's most popular design blog, which yeah. it definitely is. I told my boyfriend last night that they say that, but it's actually the world's most popular design blog. I don't know that. No. I just felt that intuitively. <laughs> very you kind. take it. You take it. I'll take it. So now that you have grown so much, what does your team look like? Are you a lot of freelancers? Are you a big team in-house? It's sort of like a smallish team in-house, although it's growing. I never really intended for it to grow 
that much, but just every year we just need more resources. I've got a team of seven in the office. So we've got an editor and a great couple of writers and then two people in the design team because we're a very visual website like you guys. So there's a lot of commissioning photography, reworking photography, laying out photography and also doing a lot of branding. We have a lot of pop-ups and exhibitions and our podcast that requires graphic things. So we have two in our design team and then we have a couple of partnerships, people that deal with our client partnerships. So I think it's seven plus me at the moment. It's a lot of people. Like I love them. They are absolutely such a massive part of what we do and they are the backbone of our business. But also it's, I feel the responsibility of having staff in a very personal way. Like I'm really conscious of all these incomes that I'm responsible for and looking after staff and I don't want to be too much bigger. That's a good number for me. Mm. And then we have a bunch of freelancers. So we have a heap of freelance writers and freelance photographers in Melbourne and in other cities so that we've got their content coming in on a regular basis. Yeah, I feel like it's such an ideal way to run a business. We used to, when we were starting out hiring people, we were like, we want this massive team. We want to be this empire. And now we have two full-timers and we have an intern and a consultant who's in one or two days a week. And it's just a really nice size. And you realize like it's a lot of your time to manage people and being able to outsource to like agencies and freelancers where you can and keep that core team small it makes it a lot more manageable yeah and I mean going back to what we were saying before about staying successful and sort of riding out lulls when they come I think being able to be nimble is such a huge part of it especially again when your business is online because things change so quickly you know there'll be a new social media platform soon I hope because I'm a bit over Instagram. <laughs> you on TikTok? Uh, yeah, no, I can't into TikTok. <laughs> Neither. But yeah, oh, I thought you'd be like all over mm, it. No, no, mm. we're too old Yeah, me too. Yeah. I just feel like it changes all the time and you need to be able to respond to that. And it's hard. The bigger your team is, the more systems you need and the harder it is to sort of get everyone to switch what they're doing to accommodate some new trend or some new algorithm or whatever it is. So I sort of feel like being small and nimble is definitely uh, important in our businesses. A lot of people can build up a following or a readership, but then the part where they struggle is to monetize. And we definitely experienced that too, which is part of the reason why we came up with Tubes. But that seems like something that you guys have done really well. So how did you go about monetizing it? In the early years, it was so straightforward because people used to advertise on the internet. And when I say advertise, I mean, just place ads on popular websites. <laughs> like it used to be in the newspaper when yeah, you like buy an ad space. Exactly. It just is a really straightforward transaction. It's like, here's the space, you buy it for this length of time, we'll give you this many views on it and thank you very much. And then things really change. It was seen in a lot of international blogs, which is sort of relevant to me because I was looking at these international design blogs that inspired me to start Design Files, sites like Design Sponge, Apartment Therapy, and a lot of them really struggled when there was this big shift in the way people were spending their ad dollars online. And essentially what happened was Google and also Facebook made advertising really cheap online because you could just reach so many more people by advertising on Facebook or via Google than you could by placing an ad on a sort of niche blog like mine. And so with that shift, you know, you just have to revalue what you do. There's no way we could compete on price with Google. <laughs> if you can buy ads on Google, it just doesn't stack up financially to put your money into niche sort of website like mine from an advertising perspective. So at that time, you know, sponsored content became a bigger thing and the client collaborations really became how we started to make our money. And we had to really pivot from being a brand that's just made content and sold advertising to a brand that would be offering creative services to brands and creating content with and for brands. And that was a big shift. And that meant I had to build my team because selling advertising is actually quite straightforward. You've just got to sell it, but there's not a whole lot of service required. But you know, when a brand comes to us now, as I'm sure happens to you guys all the time, it's like, oh, we've got this new product. It's going to be in market in April. We want to reach this certain demographic. And then you have to sort of come up with an idea and pitch it back to them. And then you have to shoot it, style it, shoot it, whatever. And it's a big creative exchange. And it's presented great growth opportunities for us that the switch to sponsored content. But it's also meant that we had to really crew up and elevate our offering and just professionalize what we were doing in order to be competitive in that space. I feel like so many brands will come to us and they'll just be like, what do you think? Here's a product. What do you think? And it's like, oh, okay. It really requires a lot of creative thinking on your part to be able to come up with innovative content again and again. Yeah. And to balance the needs of 
your audience and the client because, mm. you know, there are certain brands you don't that aren't right for you to work with and there are certain formats that you just don't want to play in. And so, you know, we've got rules like everybody else around what we will do and what we won't do. And it's just a constant juggle. So we've had to really shift the way we make money. And a big part of it is just about looking at your value. And I guess our value is our reach and our influence. And, you know, we've just had to change how we monetize that. We really love the open houses that you guys do. So we thought maybe because some people maybe don't know about it, you could tell us a little bit about them and how the idea kind of came about. So the Design Files Open House started in, I think it was 2011, the first one. Essentially, pop-ups were just starting to be a thing. This is another thing that makes me sound really old when I say that, but a pop-up wasn't that common back then. And I had the opportunity to do a pop-up, but I was thinking, what am I going to do? I don't just want to do something in some vacant shop front. Like I really want it to feel like true to my brand and a really exciting experience. So I sort of asked myself this question of, okay, well, if the design files were a physical space, what would it look like? And that was a weird thing to think about because I'd never been anything other than just a website at that point. And it was pretty obvious once I asked myself that question, what it needed to look like. And I was like, well, it needs to be a beautiful Australian home filled with Australian art and design and the product that we feature and champion on this website, right? So it was like, okay, well, that's obvious to me now. That is what Design Files needs to look like. If I'm going to invite people to come to the Design Files in real life, that's what it needs to be. Yeah, because it's kind of scary because you can be so controlled with your website. But for us, when we throw things in person, they're often quite ad hoc and we'll just get some Ikea furniture, paint it pink. But for you, that That is it. Yeah, exactly. The design experience is so important. Yeah, the pressure was on, that's for sure. And I mean, again, when I look back, I'm just like, oh, it wasn't exactly the most stylish. There's just always things in retrospect that you go, it wasn't even that polished really, but there was a lot of excitement around that event in the first few years. And again, that magic of doing it when you don't really know what you're doing and that early days sort of enthusiasm. And so we leased a house and emptied it of furniture and got some brands and collaborators on board and filled this house with furniture, art, objects, from I think around 60 or 70 different brands and makers, some big brands, but some more indie makers as well. And the idea was that it was open to the public over four days and that you could buy anything in the house. So you can literally walk through and, you know, grab a book off the shelf and buy it on your way out or whatever, you know, ceramic from the kitchen or whatever, or you could buy the furniture or the rug or the artwork. So it started there and it started, and we did go nuts. The first one was insanely busy. It actually nearly killed me. I was so shell-shocked because I had never hosted an event like that. We didn't use an event company. I just had like friends and casual staff helping. It was just really intense. But everyone loved it. And I still like get asked about Open House. We don't do it every year because it's a bit too much, but we do it every two to three years. And we are going to do one this year. Yay. Yeah. It's either late November or early December, but I'll keep you posted. We can't wait to see. And like you said, they're always so packed. Like you go in there and you can like barely move. It's pretty amazing. Are there any specific things that you feel like you've done that have helped to create such an engaged community? I really think our community responds to the sort of integrity of our brand. I know that sounds sort of cheesy, but I think it's clear to our community that we have certain standards and we're very values driven and we do take a stand on things and have an opinion on things. And our audience really know that, you know, when we recommend something, we back it and we have integrity. Which is so important. We love bringing our values into our business, like our shoes being vegan. And we often talk about how that's what a consumer wants in 2020. Like kind of want to know that you're not just like a soulless product or a blog that you like really stand for things and that you care for things. And if they can connect with those things that you care about, then they'll connect with you as a brand. Well, I think as well, it's about having a human face of your business. So like for us, I mean, I am the face of my business. I'm a visible face in in a way people know that if they're reading something on my website even if I haven't written it they know that there's a human behind it and there's that connection and for you guys the same I think people really connect you with the brand and I think big business is missing that and I think that is what differentiates often smaller businesses because people sort of really respond to that human element And the other thing is we do things that are so insane that no commercial enterprise would ever do them. Like open house is actually not really that profitable because it's just insane. Like we used to do it in a house and now it's gotten so big, so many people come. We actually, no one wants to lend us their house because why would you, if you have a big, beautiful house, you don't want 7,000 people traipsing through it. So now we hire a vacant space and build a sort of house-like environment within the space. And 
it's a really expensive event to produce and therefore it actually doesn't really make that much sense financially. But I think there is a real magic that comes with doing stuff that is borderline impossible like that, that doesn't actually make that much financial sense because the audience responds to it because they don't see it everywhere. And the reason they don't see it everywhere is because big brands would never invest time and money in doing that. You're so right. Like we've got (laughs) this like dream concept for this thing called Hotel HTL and we love it. I love it already. Oh, my God, yeah. thanks. And, like, the word hotel is kind of HTL. So good. Yeah, so we've, like, been planning this thing and we're speaking to some hotels at the moment about hosting it in a hotel. We would, like, book out all these rooms and we would just, like, create the experience of how to live in a weekend and we would have a movie night and a shopping trip. So and, good. And, yeah, we're, like, we wouldn't be making any money off of it. And that's why, yeah, no big companies are doing it. Yeah. But it would be so much fun and it's an experience that our community would just, love to have that makes them more engaged for then when you do have something that is commercial they'll be way more likely to be open to the idea and it's essentially like a marketing thing like a big brand does have a marketing budget which they just invest in it's just like our version of that of building that brand value brand building yeah it's pretty cool for us to see like how it's like seeing another sliding doors moment for how our brand could have gone, but it just like never quite made it. No, but you guys, I when I look at what you do, you are really ahead of the game with tubes because now I'm in a position where literally the vast majority of our income and our revenue stream as a business comes from collaborations and projects with brands, which means there's a lot of hustle that comes with that. We need to sell all the time. And To me now, I'm looking at what you guys have done and gone, I just want to diversify a bit and have some other revenue streams that aren't all dependent on big brand projects. And Mm. I'm like, well, actually, it's almost like buying back a bit more of my independence if I had a product or just something that a small percentage of my audience, you know, bought into a product or some other service we were selling, then that would just take the edge off and just enable us to remain a bit more independent and not be so beholden to the branded stuff we do. So I feel like you guys are ahead of the game on that front. So I need to pick your brains about Oh, that. feel free <laughs> to pick our brains. It would be really cool if you guys had, I don't know, something that you could buy or download that was a bit of a guide as to how to like attack design projects, you know, because when I look on there, I'm just like, oh my God, all these houses are so amazing. Like I want my house to look like that, but I don't know how the fuck to make my house look like that. You're like reading my mind. I feel like there's ideas in my coming up. We'll keep you posted on it. Okay, amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's a thing, isn't it though? Like you can go in so many different directions and you chose to go down that sponsored content brand direction. We went down the product direction, but more because we just couldn't make it work monetizing in that way. So we pivoted because we had to. So it's like we could have all ended up in any one of these streams it just happens as it happens yeah what's the sort of division with you guys between tubes and then how to live the content side like Mm -hmm. do you spend 50 percent of your time on each or what's sort of driving the business now well revenue wise it's fully tubes like that's where we make our money but then like how to live is like pure passion especially right now with the podcast because we don't advertise on here so we don't make any money from it and the reason was though because how to live kind of fizzled out like had we only had how to live and we hadn't diversified and and started tubes we probably would have ended up closing it and we actually thought about closing it a couple of years ago we were like well tubes is making all the money and tubes is where the opportunity lies should we just kill off how to live and there was like a night where we were like yeah how to live's dead and then the next day we were like doesn't feel right yeah we just love it and we personally get so much out of it and we've built this awesome community but having a community doesn't mean money you know it takes a lot more than just having a community but we love what it does for people and we love the way people connect with it and it makes people have this freedom to be themselves yeah we just kept it fizzling in the background and then you know we realized we are how to live at one point we were going to start something called the dad on sisters and we were I like our insta name that is should still. be the next thing and then we were like wait but the how to live is the dad on yeah sisters. like that doesn't make any sense totally agree with that i think you you did the right thing following your intuition to sort of keep how to live alive and then this podcasting opportunity came on our radar like probably 18 months ago and we were like oh we always loved creating content we weren't that good at polished content visually yeah and we also didn't love being in front of the camera and so podcasting now for us has become this thing where you know we will look to monetize it and we might start to get sponsors on as we grow it but right now it's having so much fun with it yeah so we probably spend too much time on it but that's good I feel like that's the sort of 
magic that you so easily lose. So if you've been able to reignite that through this project, I think that's amazing. Yeah, it makes everything better. Like when I'm planning out my week, it really like fulfills you. That's great because it makes all the other stuff that you have to do, like managing people, which I don't really like, <laughs> like it's okay. No, totally. And when you're fulfilled, then your business is going to do well. You know what I mean? Like yeah. as soon as you get a bit jaded by stuff, which I do from time to time, I feel like it definitely filters down to your audience and your customers. Mm. They just feel it. There's a point in so many businesses where I feel like you see that sort of just the enthusiasm drop off. Totally. We did want to chat all things digital with you because you are the digital queen. And for us, we look at your website. Whoa, it's amazing. You guys. Oh my God. I was just like- It's an incredible experience for a user. And it kind of has the same experience of walking into a beautiful space where it's kind of like light and bright and beautiful. And I like the way that there's like a lot of movement. And I think for us, it's something we struggled with is like our .com has never been something that we're like really happy with. We're redoing it at the moment, but we just feel like once we get it out there, we're going to want to redo it again. How do you stay current on what the trends are with digital and are you constantly having to redo it every few years or is it constantly evolving? The website itself, I mean, that is our number one place that we prioritize and I don't have a physical shop. Yeah, it's basically your product. So we really prioritize it. I mean, when I got an in-house designer, I used to have freelance designers. And when I was able to get a girl in-house who started out as a graphic designer and now she's our art director, that was a bit of a game changer because it's sort of always on her radar to be like, oh, this section of the website's looking a bit dated now. I think we should change this. Just these incremental things so that it's not always a big redesign. It's more the incremental things and just having someone in-house that is sort of responsible, I guess, for the visual look and feel of how you present to the world. So that was a game changer. And then also just a realization, I think, that having a website is actually never finished. (laughs) And even when you redesign it, it's never like just done and I won't think about it for two years. It's sort of constantly evolving. So we do often, like every couple of months, we'll make some little tweak that you probably wouldn't notice, but over time, it keeps it looking current. And little things like you know, now that the way people are used to scrolling on Instagram and that little bounce when you get to the bottom of an endless scroll and those sort of user experience things, those things change the way people use the internet and people using the internet more on their phones now, whereas they used to use more on their desktop. Your website can start looking really dated if you're not responding to those changes. Yeah, it's kind of like constantly making those little changes rather than, I feel like a lot of people will leave the website for five years and then go, oh shit, it's so outdated. And then you get a whole new one and then it keeps happening like that. Yeah. I mean, we probably do redesign our website maybe every three years, to be honest, or historically it's been probably three years, but it's more about the incremental changes. And the other thing is we are a full-time content machine. (laughs) And so the website is very dynamic. Like you never really open it and see the same thing twice. And that is part of it too. Like we're generating like between three to five stories a day. So it's not just about the design of the website. It's just about the fact that it's always fresh. You can keep coming back and you'll, you'll never know what you'll expect. My favourite part of your website is where you get to have sticky beak at other people's houses. Mm. Oh, yeah, I know. That's everyone's favourite. So good. Oh, I love it. Like if I'm just like being super indulgent on a weekend, I'll just like open a million tabs of all the ones I haven't seen that are newer and then I'll just look through all of them. It's so fun. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely been the most popular content on our site since day one, like the houses. Well, because it's really fun. I want to be able to walk inside someone's house. Like there's a really beautiful house across the road. I really want to know what it looks like inside, but you can't. Yeah. But on your website, you can. I know. And it's a good vehicle for me to just like snoop and then like sort of have a legitimate reason to snoop inside people's houses. Our version of that is meeting people on our podcast. Like, oh, hey, we would love to interview you. But secretly, like we just want to sit down with them for an hour. Totally. (laughs) And if it's in their house. Even better. (laughs) So we couldn't have you on the podcast without chatting designs and just picking your brain about interiors and how to go about designing a space, refreshing a space, all of that stuff. So we wanted to ask you, so we've each been living in our houses for a few years now and they're really beautiful and like we kind of have everything that we need, but we're both at a stage where we're a bit like ready for a spruce up. So we wanted to ask you if there are any like things to focus on. When you've got everything you need, you've been living in your house for a few years, but it just needs a bit of a liven a up. 
Yeah. yeah, a bit of a zhuzh. I feel like I don't nail this myself, but I sort of know what the advice is, but I don't actually take it myself, if you know what I mean. Maybe a good analogy is building a wardrobe because I'm really bad. I know nothing about fashion. But you know when you just go shopping and you just buy things because you just like them and some they sort of stand out to you like a crazy print or colour and you go, I love that, and you get it home. It just doesn't work with anything else you have and you actually don't have anywhere to wear it and it's just that thing that was a real impulse buy yes. and it's not actually a very strategic way to build your wardrobe. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that happens in people's homes where it's like, I love that lamp and I need that couch. And then you, you know, accumulate things you love over time, which I really encourage. I don't think people should be too safe. I love when people have some, you know, passion and enthusiasm for buying eclectic things. And I hate when things are too matchy matchy. So I, I do encourage people to be creative and brave with their decisions when they buy things for their home. But there's a point where you've gathered some beautiful pieces that you love, but then you do need to sort of think critically a bit more about the overall look and how it ties together. And it's not enough to just have a collection of random beautiful things that don't really talk to each other. So there's a point where you do have to like work with what you've got, but then be a bit strategic about what key gaps, the little tiny elements that are missing that can really glue everything together. But I feel like often that can be the difference between you know, a house that is just really you versus a house that's just a collection of stuff. Yeah, no, I feel like that's great advice. Rather than giving up on it and being like, ah, I've just got stuff and it's not working together, sometimes adding just the right thing to it or maybe it's even like taking away the right thing. Exactly. You know, sometimes that's the difference between, ah, this isn't working and, ah, this is a beautiful space now. I totally agree with that. And also like you do need those sort of staples. Often I think we just look at sort of individual items but we don't think about a rug or a floor covering or a wall colour. Those are actually the things that are the foundation of a room. You know, that's like your basics in your wardrobe, to go back to a fashion analogy. I just feel like sometimes you can get really sidetracked by sparkly finishing touches and not sort of get the basics because they're not the exciting things often. And are there any like secret little things that you do to like change a space, even just some flowers or some candles or some really little things? I don't really get sidetracked by little flourishes. I think furniture placement can be a game changer. So if I go into a space, it's not about what you've got. It's just about... We went on a holiday to Queensland just recently and we hired a house, really nice sort of beach shacky house. And the furniture was really basic, but the couch was just totally facing the wrong way. And it was so obvious to me when I walked in that I was like, why, when you've got a water view, would your couch be facing the TV? Anyway, so we moved the furniture around and it was so much better. So I think often you walk into a space and it's actually just about looking at the light. Where's the light coming from? Where is the furniture facing? Is it facing each other to encourage sort of interaction or is it sort of all facing a TV? So I actually would be more inclined to just go, let's just drag the furniture around and see if we can get a better vibe happening. That to me is a fun thing to do more so than just adding a flourish, you know? That is really good advice. I like that. So we end off every interview with some quick fires. Okay. What are some of your favourite homewares brands? Well, as I was driving here, I went past Jardin, fantastic Australian retailer. They're all made in Australia and the whole company is carbon neutral, which is awesome. So I love Jardin. International brands, I do love Hay, you know, their stuff, mm. their accessories. It's really fun and not too expensive, but really good quality. And I really love handmade things. So there's a bunch of amazing local ceramicists and stuff in Melbourne whose work I love. So just in terms of like beautiful tableware, I think I like to go handmade for that stuff. Where do you find inspiration? I would like to say that I had a different answer to this question, but probably I find it mainly on the internet. Mm. (laughs) same shit I know we need to get out more (laughs) any tips on how to keep a house clean when you have little kids I'm really bad at that you would have to ask my husband he's way more clean and neat and tidy than me well because I feel like you know you've got such a beautiful home yourself and you've got a five-year-old daughter do you sacrifice having nice things or do you just go oh well it's just gonna get dirty everyone's house is in my experience messy until someone comes around to do a photo shoot there. I don't care if it's a bit messy. I just feel like, well, I'll tidy it up if it's going to be seen. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No white couches though? No, nothing white? No. Yeah, I guess I'm a bit sensible in that way. But no, I don't, I'm actually not very precious at home. Yeah. I love your daughter's name, Minnie. Thank you. So cute. (laughs) The best name. Do you have any book recommendations? I like reading cheesy business books, like entrepreneurial sort of inspiring books. I read one recently called The Culture Code about team culture. I'm really into team culture and I really value that in my business. So that was a really great one. Oh, another episode we'll have to have with you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And do you guys, have you guys read The E-Myth? 
That's no. like an old school business book, quite old now, but one of those famous business books that is really useful if you run a small business. Oh, awesome. I'll have to check it out. And what's the most beautiful hotel you've ever stayed at? I really like Paramount House Hotel in Sydney in Surrey Hills. I've stayed at a few big fancy hotels, but I like a small boutique hotel with really creative flourishes and uh, there's a lot of local makers that have been involved. So lots of beautiful sort of details by local makers, a lot of Australian furniture and product in there too. So got to give them a shout out. I love staying there. Okay. We'll have to check it out. I feel like we need more amazingly designed boutique hotels in Melbourne. We definitely do. Well, Jackalope's opening one in the city. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Well, they've got that one on the Mornington Peninsula, but now they're going to have one in the city, but I don't know when it's opening, but maybe that'll be the one when they're open. Mm. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad we got to sit down and have this conversation. Thank you, guys. It's been so fun. That was the wonderful Lucy Fagans. Hope you enjoyed the heck out of that episode and happy to report that because everybody is now spending a lot more time at home and you would have noticed that TikTok is going crazy. We are now on TikTok. You can follow us at How to Live. Come on over. We will probably not be doing any dance videos, but there'll probably be a lot of animal videos. Should we do one now? Yeah. We'll I do think one we should do one after this. We'll do one right now. Okay. Amazing. If you like this episode, please help us get the word out. You can do that in a few ways. Rate us five stars, leave a review. Also share it with your friends. We love to see you listening to the podcast on Instagram. Please tag at how to live. And if you want to get the bonus content and come along and see the tour of my house, please come and join our Facebook group, How to Live the Podcast. Next week on the podcast, we have another very positive, uplifting one for you. It is with the incredible Pam Ahern. She is the founder of Edgar's Mission, which is our very favorite animal rescue sanctuary here in Melbourne. Well, just outside of Melbourne. We actually got to interview her on the farm, which was really fun, like in a barn. Guys, we were in a barn. We had to pause when it was raining because there was a tin roof. Here's a little snippet. Now, one of the great determinants of society's ethical progress, our ability to embrace those we once considered different, whether it was a colour, whether it was their skin, their religion, they followed even the foods they ate. You know, great ethical progress has been our ability to embrace those differences and recognise that there is more that unites us with others that share our planet than divides us. And that's, I think, our greatness of our humanity. And it was uh, Chief Justice Michael Kirby, the High Court of Australia, he said that the way that we treat animals is our next great social justice movement. And by God, I reckon he's on the money there. That's on the podcast next week. Until then, stay safe. We'll see you at the many places where you can find us, Instagram Live, every day and on our Facebook group. See you guys. Stay safe. Bye. Bye.